Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, it is the 19th of July. I am here with Tammy. My name's Jay Kang, and uh, we are supposed to say that now at the beginning, um, <laughs> which I do think is a good idea, but it's yeah. always so strange to me. Um, today we have a special guest. Tammy, why don't you, who's our guest today? Yeah, we're really excited to bring in Anjali Kamat, who is a friend of the pod. And Anjali has been doing investigative journalism in the U.S., South Asia, the Middle East, for places like Al Jazeera, Reveal, WNYC, for a long time. Um, but the reason we're bringing her on is to talk about Narendra Modi of India, his policies in India, and his presence in the U.S., continuing our state dinner critique series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have... Uh... Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought it was a great conversation that we had, and um, certainly yeah, really very helpful. informative in a lot of ways. And I think that Modi is one of these figures in the world in which, like, people have. He is big enough, and he's important enough, obviously, where people feel the need to have some sort of opinion, and uh, but that you know, it's not quite enough to actually learn all that much about it. Right. And so mm-hmm. for us, it was pretty informative and I think, hope it will be for you, too. So without really much further ado, we don't need to do the usual little setup dance here. Let's just launch right into our conversation. <laughs> So great seeing you, Anjali. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. So one of the uh, our listeners was very curious to talk about Modi and Modi's White House visit that happened last week as a way of talking about, you know, these broader currents in India. We know that the Hindu right has been rising. Um, so we have tons to talk to you about today. But maybe one starting place for folks who may not have been following this as closely is who is Narendra Modi? When did he come to power? Why should we be worried about him? Um, Sure, that's always a good place to start. Uh, Modi is uh, the Prime Minister of India, which is now the world's largest country. (laughs) Um, As Modi likes to say, the world's largest democracy, but that's a contentious point among critics of what's happening in India. Modi came to power in 2014. Um, He is, according to opinion polls, extremely popular. He has a popularity rating of like, I don't know, almost 75%. Um, when you look at the sort of actual voting patterns, you know, the, his political party, the BJP, just gets about a little over a third of the votes, actual votes of people. But they've been in power since 2014, elections every five years in India. So he was elected in 2014 and again in 2019. And it's uh, pretty likely that he will be prime minister again in 2024. That's what they're hoping mm-hmm. for. The thing about Modi and his political party is that they are Hindu nationalists. Um, Modi comes from, uh, is a member of this volunteer group that was modeled on the Italian fascists that was started Mm. almost 100 years ago called the RSS. Modi's been with them since he was eight years old. Um, Their political spinoff is the BJP, which is his political party. Um, And since Modi came to power, what you see is um, an overwhelming Hinduization of the state and the society and kind of using the power of the state um, to really convince Hindus that um, what unites them against Muslims is much more important than the divisions of caste and class amongst them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's been so dangerous because what you're seeing under Modi since 2014 is... 
you know, um, just this widespread crackdown on dissent. Um, and uh, alongside that, a steady rise in repression, persecution of uh, religious minorities, particularly mm-hmm. Muslims and increasingly Christians as well. Um, mm-hmm. One of the most disturbing things has been there's been a sharp rise since 2014 um, of uh, lynchings of Muslims. Um, and this is basically like mob attacks on individual Muslims. Um, and, you know, you didn't really, I mean, you we've always had a history of large-scale sectarian violence in India and even pogroms, but having mobs of people attack individual Muslims on suspicion that he's a Muslim is something that's quite new and you're seeing um, a real rise in it. Um, since 2014, there's been hundreds of Muslims who have been lynched. Um, and when people started speaking out about this, because there's obviously outrage, um, you're seeing a real um, crackdown on people who are critical of the government um, over the past nine years, but particularly since 2019, there's been um, a rise in the number of political prisoners who are being held without trial. And these are, I mean, human rights activists, uh, intellectuals, public intellectuals, poets, professors who have been accused of all kinds of things and thrown into prison without trial. Mm-hmm. Um, journalists who have been um, assaulted. Um, the you know India used to pride itself on having a free press, and over the past few years, that has taken a real beating. So it's it's become a much scarier place to live. Um, you know, all of the different places that kind of track how democracies are doing, all of the different sort of global measurements, talk about India now as a flawed democracy and talk about the sort of sliding into authoritarianism. Um, you know, the press freedom, I think, uh, uh, Reporters Without Borders um, ranks India like 161 out of 180 countries. Um, it's one of the most dangerous places for the media. Um, there's, you know, a lot of online harassment and in-person harassment and also threat of arrest. Um, there is, uh, India has the highest number of internet shutdowns in the world. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think last year, the, the, the Holocaust Memorial Museum ranked India among the top 10 countries at risk of mass killings. So it's, wow. a, it's a grim situation since Modi's come mm-hmm. to power. Right. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about his popularity, because there's something that's really since the beginning has always struck me, which is that, you know, regardless of what you, whether or not you think this number is real or not, right? It's mm-hmm. hard to track yeah. popularity, especially in a place where it's difficult to have a free press. Um, you know, he is, by many measures, the most popular political leader in the world, right? Like, that's a phrase that is trotted out all the time. And so from my perspective, like, you know, you have some skepticism about it, but clearly he must be popular at some level, right? To, or, or else, like, this narrative would not be out there and he wouldn't be as effective as he is. Like, what is you know, like, what is the basis behind his popularity? And I guess the reason why I'm asking is because, you know, you know, I think that there is a, you know, he has great power. And maybe that is eventually why Joe Biden or the State Department feels like they need to invite him in. Like, you know, the like Tammy said, the reason why we're talking about this is because of this recent visit. But yeah, like, well, what, what is sort of behind his immense popularity? Yeah, that's a great question. And he is really popular. I mean, I think you can 
sort of parse that by saying, look, the southern states in India don't really vote for the BJP. But I think overall, there is a feeling among most Indians you meet that they're really proud of Modi and really proud to have Modi as a leader. So on the one hand, you know, I think Modi's really kind of positioned himself as sort of bringing India onto a world stage in terms of international foreign policy, in terms of uh, the economy. Um, And India is a major economy. Um, It's a major world market. It's the world's biggest um, arms buyer. Um, So it's obviously very attractive to a lot of other countries around the world. Um, And he also kind of uses this almost like anti-colonial rhetoric to talk about, you know, really you know, and in a way that's that's very kind of attractive to a lot of people, right? Especially across the global south of like, you know, this is our time. Um, we should be treated as equals on the world stage. Um, why should we just listen to what the West says or just what Russia says, right? This is not a Cold War moment. We're in a multipolar moment. So it's almost hearkening back to these um, ideals of the non-aligned movement, but you know, mm. with a right-wing twist, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and really kind of talking about India as being an independent player that needs to be taken very seriously on the world stage. So that's something I think a, a lot of people mm-hmm. really like. And within India, he has this image of being very efficient, um, not corrupt, really doing things for the nation. And it's it's been proven wrong, Um repeatedly, but it doesn't seem to have an impact. And you saw this with the way he handled COVID, the number of deaths, um, with the way what's going on with the economy. I mean, there's been a massive loss in jobs. There's a huge jobs crisis, crisis, massive underemployment. There's all kinds of crises in the economy um, and in politics and in the society. But somehow the myth around Modi persists. And I think one of the reasons for that that is actually quite disturbing is because Modi taps into a kind of key idea of Hindu nationalism and has sort of spread that, popularized it among people. This idea that Hindus, who are the majority of the country, who are 80%, are the victims and have historically Mm. been victims of Muslim invasions um, and Muslim persecution. And this narrative has taken hold to such an, a degree that people really, you know, are feel very Hindus, people who identify as Hindus feel very proud to be Hindu. And there's this, this narrative that's sort of achieved through sort of explicit statements of Modi, um, through dog whistles, um, through his policies, certainly, of just like, you know, be proud to be a Hindu. And we, it's our time, we've been under the thumb of colonial rule for years. I mean, he even said this in his congressional address, where he, it sort of slipped by in his speech. Um, It wasn't really picked up in the US media, but it was the one line that I was really shocked by, where he talks about India being under colonial rule for a thousand years, which is like amazing because um, that's not (laughs) how long European colonialism lasted. And he's basically equating, you know, the Mughal period and um, Mm -hmm. periods of, you know, different Muslim dynasties in India that never ruled all of India um, as colonial. But that's such a key part of the kind of RSS Hindu nationalist ideology. And he's made that mainstream. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people are tapping into that and tapping into this very dangerous idea that Muslims are outsiders, 
Muslims right. are outsiders. Increasingly, Christians are outsiders. They're fifth columnists. They're dangerous, you know, which then leads to this sort of even more dangerous idea that, you know, whatever happens to them is okay. Yeah, the, you know, like, what is the basis behind this? Uh, I, I guess, like, the idea of sort of an aggrieved nationalism, right, within a majority population, of, of course, is very familiar to anyone in the United States, whether, you know, the Christian movement or white nationalism, and the parallels are very easy to draw. But I don't want to sort of simplify it too much. But, you know, like, what is the, what are the specifics? Of, and the, after this, we can get into the specifics of the State Department dinner, but the, you know, like, what are the specific grievances that they have? Like, I just remember way back in the day, I came across this article and I wanted to do like a TV segment on it. And it was about um, sort of vigilant cow vigilantes, right, in India. And these are people mm-hmm. who would sort of ambush trucks or, you know, or, or sort of Muslim grocers and they would if they found beef, right, um, they yeah. would basically lynch the person there, right? Like, yeah. and like it, I think that's the right term. Like, they would drag people out of trucks, mm-hmm. they would beat them mm-hmm. to death, right? Um, and uh, they would wear these saffron robes, and it was like this sort of visually arresting and sort of horrifying thing. Which, at the time, I was working for Vice. That's exactly what Vice wants to do, right? <laughs> I was hoping I would do it in a more sensitive way than the norm, you know? But, like, I don't know. We had a lot of good people working there at the time. And so I don't want to – but, you know, the old school Vice where they would be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, cowboy, you know, like, whatever. And then you see someone, like – anyway, like, I know that that's, you know, like, that there's all sorts of stuff that is, um, you know, obviously religiously important to people but that it was sort of weaponized and it was made violent in a way that was uh, that felt new at the time, even back then. Um, well, but what what are some of the other mm-hmm. what are some of the other like grievances that are being aired out? I mean, there's just this, you know, the, the beef lynchings, as they're called in India, which makes no sense to people in America when you use that term. Um, right. But yeah, the, that's a big piece of what's going on, and there's this sense that you know, Muslims, or there's these sort of narratives that are very popular among uh, a large swath of Hindus, that Muslims are taking away our jobs. So there's attacks on, um, you know, Muslim, I mean, Muslims, I have to say, the majority of Muslims in India are like among the sort of lowest socioeconomic status in the country. (laughs) Um, This is not a wealthy community. There are definitely some individual wealthy Muslims, like Bollywood stars, um, a few business leaders, but by and large, the community um, is not doing well. Um, But there's this narrative that Muslims are taking our jobs um, and Muslims are taking our women. These are the two big narratives. Um, And then a third sort of piece of that is Muslims are taking our land as well. So there are these sort of... um, claims that are made, these slogans of um, love jihad, um, where there are these accusations of uh, made by, you know, and this is what's interesting about what's how this sort of happens in India. And it's got a lot of parallels, I think, in some ways to how right wing ideas spread in the US as well, um, where you've got far right figures, and really fringe groups coming up with these sort of campaigns, like this campaign of love jihad saying, you know, Muslim boys are flirting with and seducing Hindu girls and then getting them to convert to Islam and then 
increasing their population, right? Because Muslims can have four wives and Muslims are going to overtake us. So this is the fear that's sort of created. And this narrative of love jihad has been around for about 10 or 15 years. Since, you know, in in the past decade, um, you see different states outlaw um, marriages between Muslims and Hindus. Um, So you've got actually laws banning love jihad, making it seem like it's a real thing. Um, So that's sort of one piece of it. Similarly, there's this new campaign that sections of the right are trying to start called vendor jihad, um, you know, calling out uh, like these campaigns saying that fruit and vegetable vendors who are Muslims are, you know, A, taking our jobs, B, spitting into our fruit and contaminating our fruit and vegetables. Oh, my God. Wow. So they, then, they're just um, spreading the entire, they have the entire spread of, yes. of like, their disease, they're dirty, they're taking and, our jobs, oh, they're taking totally. our women, when, they're when taking our land. <laughs> right. At the start so of um, yeah. COVID, they, they had a whole thing called Corona Jihad, saying that a group of, like, religious okay. conservative Muslims had a campaign to spread um, COVID across the Indian population. So yeah, this is just constant. Um, And then the disturbing part is um, these sort of so-called fringe ideas become mainstream and then are even weaponized into laws. Um, So -hmm. some of this gets criminalized, right? Um, And and you saw this with, um, you know, there was a a lot of, I mean, you might've heard of these massive civil rights protests that happened in like December, 2019, January, 2020. that were led by Muslim women. And they were fascinating because they were the sort of first real civil rights moment in India, um, right before COVID. And they started because Modi's government tried to pass these laws, um, these citizenship amendment laws, that essentially would have sort of set India down a path of sort of introducing a kind of religious test for citizenship. Um, and denationalizing Muslims. So there were these massive protests that were super inspiring, but you also had like a lot of people supporting it. <laughs> um, and and I, you know, the, the government keeps sort of claiming that they're going to reintroduce these laws. They had to stop at the time because of the protests, but it's on ice and they're constantly warning that if they come back to power in 2024, they're going to bring these laws back. Mm. It's hard as you're speaking not to think about other Islamophobic campaigns in the region, like thinking about Myanmar, thinking about China, and it's just the cruelty is so similar. And the kind of this fantasy of consolidating identity in the service of power is, is, is so disturbingly familiar. Absolutely. And I mean, the right wing figures actually draw favorable comparisons. I mean, they try to invite um, the architect of, architect of the Rohingya genocide to India um, wow. They speak very favorably about what happened in Burma. And some of them, you know, openly say, we need to do what China did with the Uyghurs. Wow. Um, I want to get into the BJ- Modi and the United States and the BJP um, and its iterations here. But I just have like one quick historical question, which is, was there a point in, I mean, you know, obviously we don't have time to get into like partition and all of the sort of historical causes of some of this, but was there a sort of moment or, um, I don't know, leader under which there there was a dream of Indian multiculturalism? And like, what was the best version of that fantasy that's now trying to be dismantled? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, 
the first prime minister after independence, Jawaharlal Nehru, kind of embodied that yeah. dream. And there's many critiques right. to be made for, you know, uh, of Nehru's vision of India and how many ways it was incomplete and is critical on Kashmir, critical on caste. There's various ways to be critical of it. But at base, the idea of India at that time was very much rooted in the idea of a secular democracy that mm-hmm. treated all of its citizens equally, and that was not supposed to be a country for one religious community. It was explicitly not Pakistan, right? That was right. the idea. Pakistan was created for Indian Muslims so that they would not be a minority. But then India was supposed to be this country that was a home to everyone in India yeah. of all religious faiths. And what's so different from the kind of vision that Modi is pushing and the BJP is pushing is how do we make India into a Hindu state, a Hindu Rashtra? Right, right. So, and, and so you know, like, partition and historical narratives haven't gone away, right? I mean, that's the thing. There's so much, this, sure. this victim narrative, right? Just like supremacist movements here, this victim narrative that Hindu um, supremacists are pushing is built on this idea of past wrongs done to us. And the biggest right. one, of course, is partition. Um, so yeah. the, the sort of war cry of Hindu mobs during riots and pogroms is to Muslims is like Pakistan ya Kabristan, which is go mm-hmm. to Pakistan or go to the graveyard. I was going to say, yeah, right. Um, so, so last month we see Modi on, you know, in the best seat at whatever on the world stage, you know, in, in the White House. And I'm curious what that means, you know. Um, obviously there have been a lot of critiques from people like you and other people with knowledge of the situation. Like this is not a normal leader. We shouldn't really be treating him this way, um, to validate his, his leadership. But yeah, I guess like, how did it feel to kind of watch that state dinner process? Um, and yeah, what does that mean going forward? And, you know, what is the proper way to deal with somebody like Modi, given how powerful India is, how important India is on the world stage? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I was very curious. I think I don't have any illusions that the United States is going to be super critical of human rights in India. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's also obviously hypocritical in many ways to imagine the U.S. really um, wrapping anyone on the knuckles for human rights abuses or for, (laughs) you know, uh, democratic black backsliding. There's a lot of work we have to do on that at home and not to mention all of the foreign policy stuff. But I think people were really disappointed. Activists and anyone who really cares about democracy in India were extremely disappointed to see the red carpet welcome for Modi. You know, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. there's an understanding that the U.S. needs to have a very pragmatic and good relationship with India because India is, you know, so important on the world stage. Um, but India is never going to be a kind of client state of the U.S. Um, in its, right. you know, positions on China or Russia. And India has, you know, a very strong relationship with Russia and a complicated relationship with China. Um, mm-hmm. But it makes sense to have a strategic partnership with India, certainly. I think it was very disappointing for activists and people who care about democracy to see so little public criticism of what was going on in India. And it's ironic that the strongest public criticism during the visit of Modi directly came from President Obama in an interview to CNN, um, you know, where he said, you know, <laughs> the protection of the Muslim minority 
um, in a Hindu majority India is worth raising. And that without such protection, um, India could start pulling apart. And, mm. you know, that was the most pointed criticism of Modi. Wow. And it came from Which is President kind of Obama. ironic also. Yeah, because remember Obama holding hands with Modi. And I feel like exactly. he was the person to most elevate him in the beginning, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Modi was banned from the U.S. from 2005 to 2014. Yeah, and crazy. Obama lifted that ban. <laughs> And then he wrote a glowing profile of Modi um, in Time magazine. In Time, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I mean, he's he had been somewhat critical, but it's but it's funny because you know he was critical of Modi, and then immediately you had you know trolls in India attacking him, and also um, the the sort of a like a chief minister of a northeastern Indian state coming out and tweeting. Uh, you know, kind of hinting that, um, you know, the Indian, that his government could start arresting people with names like Hussein. Like we have a lot of Husseins to arrest in our state. So Obama should be kind of careful, <laughs> you know, wow. right. yeah, that gonna... Obama's a Muslim <laughs> and kind of drawing into all of these conspiracy theories. But, you know, mm. just like this is a government in uh, this is a government that's run by the BJP and very close to Modi. And the leader of that government is um, talking about Obama in this way. So I think for activists in India, seeing that from Obama was at least like one little note of criticism, you know, outside of obviously the squad, members of the squad who boycotted his address. But, yeah. you know, I think seeing Ro Khanna invite Modi oh, to give this address um, was very disappointing. Um, seeing uh, the kind of welcome he was given by Biden, seeing the lack of any critical comments from Biden was very disappointing. Um, you know, besides that one question at the press conference um, from the Wall Street Journal reporter, Sabrina Siddiqui, and then she gets attacked online. Right, right, um, right, right. Um, you know, so all of that was disappointing. <laughs> what's behind the uh, what's behind the the reticence to criticize um, Modi? Because I there has been a shift, right? I mean, even and that there there are flares of this that go up, right? So, for example, you have this infamous incident in Teaneck, New Jersey, where every year they have sort of a they have an Indian Independence Parade, and that recently. They brought a, uh, they had a um, bulldozer in it with, uh, you know, Modi's face on it. And that's uh, obvious. I, actually, it's not obvious, but, you know, the bulldozer is a symbol, a very clear symbol of clearing away places where Muslims live and that it's become almost a meme for getting rid of Muslims. And that this is a very clear symbol and signal by this diaspora community in Teaneck, New Jersey. Right. Um, and that, but that, it did engender a type of response, right? The local government passed a resolution. They said, we're not doing this type of stuff anymore. Like this stuff is banned. Cory Booker came out and said something, right? Because I think this was, you know, obviously within New Jersey, it's within his jurisdiction. And then everybody had to pull, like everyone had to take it back, right? Basically, like everyone's like, wait, 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 no, no, we weren't, we weren't serious. And look, I've seen the Modi trolls, right? Like online, they're extremely vicious. They're vicious in the way that, it's like so vicious. If you, if you had like a tanky population for our listener and then you multiplied it by 10,000, like that's what it's like. It's way bigger than anything you've ever encountered. Like yeah. For me, the biggest, the most amount of hate I've ever gotten, I think, online was when I made fun of the MLS. 
and every American soccer fan got super mad at me and I was denounced by the commissioner <laughs> of the ML. But like, you know, that's like an hour if you <laughs> if you're getting attacked by. <laughs> um, but I don't believe that that has that much influence. Right. Like that's like unpleasant. Yeah. It's something that journalists tend to look at. <laughs> But it's not like going to make Cory Booker basically be like, wait, oh, no, I take it back. Right. And not that he necessarily said that, but like, you know, a lot of his actions kind of indicated that. Um, Why? Why are the why is it so difficult to to place any criticism, especially on the Democrat side? Right. Like what is behind this? Like why? Why are why are people so gun shy? It's such a great question. Um, And I think Democrats should really be asking themselves this question. (laughs) More and more. Um, I think uh, a big part of it is that, you know, the diaspora, the Indian American diaspora is is pretty divided um, when it comes to Modi and the BJP. You've got a, you know, historically a large population here that has supported the BJP. I mean, and, you know, if you really look at kind of the history of the BJP, they were not a big party at all when they started. And then their campaign to demolish a mosque in the early 90s, got so much support and financial support yeah. from Indians in the diaspora, you know, that that's what gave them a real Philip. Um, so, you know, you have a history of activism um, by diasporic Indians in support of Hindu nationalism. And they still have a really sort of well-functioning machine here um, there's real questions about whether they're popular among a younger generation. And I think that's an opening um, that mm. people who don't agree with this have. But I think an older generation um, of Indian Americans is very supportive of Modi and of the BJP and mobilize incredibly quickly to push back against any criticism of Modi, any criticism of Hindu nationalism, any criticism of India, um, by calling it Hindu phobia. And this is sort mm-hmm. of a newer right. tactic, and it's you know very similar to the pro-Israel lobby kind of denouncing any criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. Um, right. Any criticism of India or Modi or Hindu nationalism is now being called Hindu phobia. So you have um, groups that are... Um, kind of advocates of the Hindu American community organizing events in Congress, organizing events with government officials at a local level, state level, national level to raise awareness about Hindu phobia. Um, and right, right. They they, they look at sometimes, sometimes they work in concert, right? Uh, Aparna Gopalan in Jewish Currents had written this article that you shared with us that I found totally yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's a great long piece. Yeah. Specific like ties with the ADL, right? And like learning from from mm-hmm. not that the ADL is specifically Zionist. I guess that's up for debate, right? But from other specifically Zionist groups, right? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Look, I'm trying to be diplomatic. Here. <laughs> I know, but, Jay. Like, from specifically Zionist groups and. Right, right. And there that there is that they that the comparison is not from like a young lefty in America who's like analyzing this and making comparisons. It's like legitimately function of state within the BJP and within the diaspora, but also the diaspora that that studies them or that supports them to study these types of movements. I found that totally fascinating because obviously you your mind goes to those types of comparisons, but mm-hmm. it seems like their minds go to those comparisons first, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, like yeah. you said, with the, with the connection with like the, with how China deals with the Uyghur 
population within that kind of like, you know, that's also something you think about. And they're like, no, we already thought of that. You know, <laughs> like you're yeah. right. You know, <laughs> like, like we won't apologize for it. You're right. Right. And this is probably a conversation for another time, but we should just note that the ADL Anti-Defamation League has really made a lot of inroads in different communities in Asian America because they really went deep on the anti-Asian hate stuff in the East Asian communities, right. trying to rile people up around that. And, you know, and, and so seeing them also do this and yeah, in the South Asian community is very um, troubling. Um, I This is something you've written about before. It's something I think you've studied, which is, and it's been fascinating to me to think about because there seems to be a contradiction and maybe it's not a contradiction at all, but I think to the person just looking at this casually, it would be a contradiction, which is that the Indian American population is overwhelmingly democratic, uh, or overwhelmingly liberal. And I think that uh, it's not even like, I think they might be the most liberal immigrant population in America, right? Like they are by far the most immig- uh, liberal immigrant population when it comes to like whatever you want to define as Asian America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, the support for the BJP and Modi is really mm-hmm. high. So like 55% of Indian Democrats uh, support him and 70% of Indian Republicans support him. I think those are figures that they found out. Um, you know, and that, that I think in some people's minds, it sets up, well, here's a far right leader. How can you be a Democrat? Don't you see the comparisons yeah. to Trump, right? Like, so like, wh- can you resolve that contradiction for us? Because like, <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense to me either. You know, I just think about it. I'm like, those to, like, aren't you just kind of a squishy liberal across the board? You know, like, yeah, like not, why not, not in this thing? I mean, I think the homeland politics. somebody like Ro Khanna, right? Who's, right. you know, progressive on so many things um, and had no problem criticizing Bolsonaro or Duterte, even though they were elected leaders. But as an Indian American in the past couple months uh, before Modi's visit, he said absolutely nothing about Modi and instead said, you know, it's not our place. Like he's an elected leader. We have to respect India. So there's really this sort of double speak on India, which I think runs through a large part of the community um, where there's this, again, I think it goes back to this sort of sense of pride in being Indian and sense of pride in Modi, giving India its deserved place on a world stage. Right. And I think that's part of it. Um, And I think it's worth sort of really thinking about also like, you know, how strong is the data that we actually have? And we need better sort of polling off the Indian American community. Because what if we just ask people, like, how do you feel about the lynching of Muslims going up under Modi? How do you feel about this democratic backsliding under Modi? How do you feel about this economic backsliding under Modi? I, I, would think that there might be some more nuanced responses. But overall, yeah, there is this idea. I think it's just a lot of people buying into the myth of Modi, frankly, um, that's been really, really successfully sold in India and overseas. Um, I think the Australian Mm -hmm. prime minister called him like the Bruce Springsteen of India, you know, uh, (laughs) called him the boss, you know, like it's, so it's just, um, he's got this image, you know, when, when he was here, um, in 2019, you know, you know, I think another sort of to go back to this point of like, what was my reaction when Modi was welcomed by Biden? You know, when Modi mm-hmm. came under the Trump administration, you know, you had that huge event, Howdy Modi, right? Um, right. Which was where Trump <laughs> welcomed him at this um, 
giant stadium in Texas of 50,000 people. That was so um, wild. Yeah, it was it was such a spectacle and, you know, just embarrassing in so many ways, but people just loved it and lapped it up. And in 2014, um, he soon after he won his first election, national election, he came to New York and he was in Madison Square Garden and there were maybe 30,000 right. people, yeah. you know, really welcoming him like he was a rock star. Um, and there was this sense that, you know, of, of intense pride, like what Indian leader has done this before? Usually, mm-hmm. you know, Indian leaders are very understated, serious, you know, um, you know, talk about economic policies in ways that are just unrelatable. Whereas he's able to really <laughs> talk to people in this, you know, populist manner that, that people mm. love. There seems to be also with him, like he ha- he is an ascetic and also there's all this yo- weird yoga stuff and kind of this like spiritualization of Modi, right? That, I mean, that's another conversation, but it does seem like this cult of personality thing is like capital C cult. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he likes his expensive designer clothes, but yeah, he's also all about yoga. You know, on this visit, I think he started off his visit <laughs> with like a yoga in the morning at the UN because it was World Yoga Day. Um, you know, and there's this, you know, there's lots of questions about, you know, yoga as we practice it today, how much of that is, you know, Indian tradition in quotes versus like, you know, some Swedish exercise mentality. But that's that's a whole <laughs> other question do you guys also feel like the support for modi here plugs into just that thing we see in all immigrant communities where there's just a little bit of amnesia and disconnection from homeland politics and so whoever is kind of in charge for people here will just represent the home and they'll sort of irrationally support them because i do feel like as you were saying anjali like in that polling question it's like how much do people really know about what's going i'm not saying that everyone's ignorant about it but i do think there's that false equation of Hindu nationalism equals Hinduism equals India equals Modi is a thing that can be, that conflation can happen very easily in the diaspora. Yeah, I think that's definitely a piece of it. I think what's disturbing is also just how um, organized the pro-BJP, pro-RSS parts of the diaspora are. You know, they... Right are very active on university campuses. They're organizing mm-hmm. sort of um, summer schools for kids, you know, and I think they've kind of taken over in many ways the space of culture uh, within the diaspora. So mm-hmm. when you're trying mm-hmm. to teach your kids, if you're an Indian American couple or an Indian immigrant couple in the U.S. and you want to teach your kids something about Hinduism, something about quote-unquote Indian culture, you know, you turn to resources within the diaspora and almost all of them are dominated by people who are influenced by or very close to the RSS. So I think Mm. that is, and they've been doing this since the 70s. So that's something that's, um, you know, I think much harder to shake. Um, I I think, though, there are some openings. And I think this is what's actually interesting. And you saw some of that with the state visit. Um, You know, if you looked at the kind of the, invitee list to the state dinner that Biden organized. It was super interesting to see who wasn't on that list. And you compare it, for example, to like other big like Indian American things that happen at the White House, like a Diwali party that Biden had or that Obama uh-huh. had. You didn't oh, yeah, have yeah, yeah, yeah. any of the like, you know, 
big name Indian American celebrities like Padma Lakshmi or Mindy Kaling or um, Cal Penn, right? Um, or even uh-huh. like Lily Singh, like any musicians, entertainment, media, Hollywood, like none of the big names who would normally be invited were on the list. Now it's not clear how many of these people, you know, didn't go because they had something else going on <laughs> versus didn't go because <laughs> they were actually you know, a part of them was hesitant to be seen to be endorsing the politics of a figure like That's Modi, true. who yeah. is divisive and controversial. The only yeah. person I noticed who went was a non-geared hard us, right? But um, that was more like because yeah. people are upset that he was going. But I don't, did none of, nobody went, right? Um, I mean, there were very few know. people. It was really like Night Shyamalan um, was the only person from Hollywood. <laughs> um Oh, yeah, you know, he's a big deal, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but every, you know, everyone's talking about this sort of, you know, Indian Americans and Hollywood blowing up, and there was right. almost nobody yeah. there. <laughs> um, yeah, there was yeah, Night Pamelin, Anand Girdardas, and a novelist, Abraham Verghese, right? Um, and oh, wow. Anand oh, right, Girdardas right. had to kind of explain why he was there on Twitter yeah. um, because he got so much shit for that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I actually thought his explanation was like, I thought I wouldn't have gone myself. You know, Tammy and I did not get invited to the Korean. I was just going to say, Jay and like our favorite activity is looking at like ter- when terrible Korean leaders come, like who went. We're not important. Right, we don't we get invited. This discussion, like, would you go to the White House? Like, even if it was like a really, you know, yeah. great leader. No, is, I don't how do we feel that. about that? And that's that's a whole other conversation. But um, but I do yeah. think there's a bit of an opening, right? I think so many people mm-hmm. post BLM, right? Young people here in this country, I think, are, and post the civil rights yeah. movement in India, the, all the protests that happen, I think people are a little bit beginning to question what is going on. And so you have like groups in the diaspora, like, you know, also really pushing some of these messages saying, this mm-hmm. isn't the only vision of India, right? We're Hindus, but we don't support Hindutva or Hindu nationalism, right? Um, right. Indian yeah. Muslims are an integral part of India, right? So there are sort of cultural and political spaces here. But just to go back to your question about fear, you know, I talked about Hindu phobia. And so there's, on the one um, part of it, there's, you know, why are politicians backing down from criticizing India? Um, and, and just one example I want to give on that is um, in, I think, 2020, um, after these civil rights protests, there were a bunch of cities across the U.S. that were trying to pass city council resolutions criticizing India for passing these laws or for introducing these laws. And they passed in Seattle, passed in a bunch of places. And in Chicago, right. it was this huge fight because the oh, wow. right wing Indian American community mobilized so well to defeat it right and it was basically like it's not our place to criticize this even though they routinely pass resolutions on cuba and other countries Um, so it's a very well organized sort of pushback system to any criticism of india Um, and and you know it's also a very wealthy community um indian americans are if i'm not mistaken the wealthiest immigrant community not just the most liberal that's right um i think the wealthiest community period in america yeah right even excluding you know i mean far richer on average than white people right there you um, go Yeah. yeah um but but in terms of um criticizing this government and criticizing hindu nationalism it's a whole other thing for 
people in the diaspora because you've got the sort of shrinking space in India and that's starting to extend to people in the diaspora as well. So you've got some activists speaking out. Um, so for example, like, you know, you saw none of these like well-known figures going to the state dinner, but hardly any of them have publicly come out and said mm. they were invited, but chose not to go because they're concerned right. about the direction India is going towards Andhra Modi, except for right. like a couple of small business owners, you know, um, like a spice company mm. owner. Um, I think her name is Sana Javari. Um, but yeah, like shout it's, out uh, to him. Yeah, <laughs> total <laughs> shout out to her. Yes, she's great. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yes, <laughs> I think the, I think they're called Diaspora Co. Is the name of the spice company. So that was cool. But very nobody else um, publicly came out and said, you know, I was invited but didn't go. And you know, you're seeing that because it's it's you know what we were talking about the trolls online, but it's yeah, also like a lot say. of consequences, like so not being allowed to go back to India, for example. That's mm. where they are very effective, I think, in terms of um, silent. I mean, people saw what happened to the journalist from the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, you take a, it's one of those things where you hear about it and then you almost don't want to look. And then you take a peek and you search her name on Twitter and you're just like, oh my God. Like, uh, <laughs> That's horrifying. And you know, I, th I think that people can be tough and they can um, get through it and it depends on the person. It's not anyone's fault if they can, but you know, some people can just ignore it and it's fine. But man, is it a chilling effect so for the people persistent. who are not going through it, you know, where they're yeah. just like, I like, you know, maybe I'll be fine, but I'd rather just not, I'd rather just not test really? myself to see if I could take a week of like nonstop psychological abuse from these people, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. The last question I had was, you know, something that I've been interested in myself, which is that, you know, Modi is so... I think that from what I've read about him and from how he's been characterized by, I think, the Western press, that he it seems like he has a real interest in the West in general, right? That that even at, while saying we need a state of our own, we don't need to be dependent on the United States, that there is a deep interest in the United States and that something like this might, you know, legitimize him in some sort of way. Like my sense of it was that like, well, he's so popular that like, being invited by Biden isn't going to change all that much about his popularity, but maybe it means something to him personally, right? Or maybe it will change the way that he thinks about, about himself and the West. Like what, what, how, what is his attitude towards the West? And then what is the, you know, we can end on this. Like what, what do you think the sort of impact of being invited and having the red carpet rolled out by him by this, you know, by this country that had banned him, right? Like, and now, now, it's like, it's not like he's changed, right? It's not like, <laughs> it's not like he's like, he like went to like therapy or rehab or something like that and came back, right? Like, he's just, not worse. He's just, he's just the same, right? And now, everything, you know, that must be an incredibly empowering feeling, you know, like if somebody's just like, yeah. have you changed? Like, did you, did you stop doing the thing we asked you to do? And you're like, no. And they're like, okay, listen. I mean, it's <laughs> like, great for your ego, right? And what an right. endorsement of your politics. Yeah. Like right. it's what clear way is there to signal that it doesn't matter what I do. Exactly. Right, right, right. You, know? you have to do this. Yeah. 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 And I, so. I think that does a lot for, um, his popularity. I mean, they definitely will use that um, in mm. their campaigning. You know, they're welcomed by world leaders. People love him everywhere. 
Yeah, and then it's sort of like, what are you complaining about? You few little dissidents in India and you Soros-funded dissidents in America. Right. Who are you? What are you really about? This is just yeah. like a left Islamist conspiracy. Right. right. Did you guys look at the, uh, just pay attention to that space launch in India, the Indian moon landing? I oh, thought that yeah. that was sort of an interesting symbolic politics thing the other day, too, yes. where it's like, you know, maybe not just like an imitation of the West kind of thing, but definitely another sort of, oh, you yeah. know, ball in this kind of world court. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all just yeah. sort of showing the world that India needs to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And in fact, as some people in India would like to say, the West has so much to learn from India. Right. You know, because um, I, I think there's also this fantasy narrative that India is going to be the world's great superpower soon. So, mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how people here sometimes think about it in terms of business, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I remember there was a period of time where I was working on something that involved me both understanding where video game companies wanted to move to market next and where television streamers wanted to market next. And the answer to both of those was mm-hmm. India. And the only thing they mm-hmm. cared about was the Indian market. And oh, wow. they failed yeah. in a lot of ways, you know, to to break in. But that didn't mean that they weren't going to keep trying. And I imagine that that's, you know, the main basis for why the red carpet is being rolled out now, right? Which is just that it's there's such so an much enormous market. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. It's like 1.4 billion people, a large, 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 hundreds of millions of whom right. speak English, <laughs> right, right, and have right. access to smartphones. <laughs> Right, um, right. And so it's amazing for content, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and to market. Yeah. I mean, there was, there's been a lot of stuff with like Netflix and Amazon Prime in India, like really bowing down to what the current government wants in terms of content. Right. And the critiques of, um, you know, anything that's critical of the government not really being allowed. The um, China market. Is work, though? I wonder about it because it's like, India has such a mature entertainment industry, you know, and um, I don't know. It just seems like Netflix busting in there and just being like, we're Netflix. It's just like, you know, it's it's great for for Indian filmmakers, though. Right. right? Especially um, sort of regional language filmmakers. Yeah. Um, And for anybody who wants to do, you know, series, anything slightly more independent or different than a, like a big Bollywood blockbuster model, suddenly you get totally. financing. Um, right. and, and that's how Netflix is talking about it. Like we're helping marginalized filmmakers. Right. But then what they don't say openly is like, what are you not allowed to talk about? What are the red lines? Yeah. Cause they'll kick us out of here. Right? Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's actually quite dystopian to think about. Um, just like this American company kind of controlling uh, very selectively giving this semblance of virtue and then saying you can't talk about it. I mean, it's similar to here in some ways too, right? Like, you know, you have this whole idea of diversity and right. in, in all this, and then you have a very, very narrow vision of what that means, right? And then anyone saying anything else kind of cast out, but you know, this would be like state sanctioned, which is a lot different. Um, okay. Well, that's, that's, I think we've had, we promised 45 minutes. We've gone 50 minutes. This is like incredibly informative. So thank yeah, you so thank much. You, and, um, thank yeah, you. we, uh, 
we've we're going to continue our state department series we're gonna, we should name this <laughs> podcast where anytime Every they have a bad dinner, asian leader <laughs> anytime the state department we could be like scotus blog but we just cover this, we just cover what's being served for dinner at the state I, department i think that's great it's what's on the menu yeah it's great yeah, oh yeah, yeah. that's good <laughs> we just get mad at everybody who's invited we're just like oh my god rights abuses alongside some mango chutney yeah oh man yeah they did have what was that big my friend hari went to some big thing at uh the white house but it wasn't this obviously what was that where it seemed like you know everybody was there it was like i think that was a diwali dinner Oh, okay. okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just like That's contrast cool. the yeah. list of people who came to that to who came to that. Yeah. It was literally everybody. Yeah, I saw him in photos and I was like, wow, he's in, he's taking photos from really famous people. You know? <laughs> 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 like, these, are, these are like legit, hugely famous people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I guess and you're right. None of those people ended up at this stage. Yeah, that's yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, like a, a decade ago, you had Cal Penn, you know, taking selfies with Modi. And, you know, right. I think there's yeah. just this sense of like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. Wait a minute. <laughs> Even yeah. if you're not going to publicly <laughs> say anything. It's too hot. It's too hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you, um, thank you for having your me. work. Thank you for listening to our show. If you'd like to support us, it's $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com. If you go there, you can sign up for a newsletter that will give you all of our episodes and access to our Discord server where you can have any type of conversation that you would like. There's hundreds of people in there who listen to the show. It's a real sense of community that you get. Um, you also can sign up at patreon.com slash ttsgpod. If you'd like to email us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach us on Twitter at TTSG pod. Until next week, goodbye, Tammy. Bye. One day.